The following is a Bible study taught at First Baptist Church of Royal City, Washington. At FBC, we endeavor to handle God's Word accurately, that believers may understand what God is doing through history and what He has planned for believers in the present. We hope you will find this study helpful in better knowing God. More audio and written studies can be found at graceteaching.net under resources. And now, our speaker. We'll start up our study here. Um, we have, I think, maybe, well, and I don't know, I have no idea where this study's going today, whether we're going to finish this in, in today or whether they're going to go through it in, in two parts because it, you can see this is a full two front and back sheet, uh, which we don't normally do. I've been cutting back because two sides is just, we, I just never seem to get through that. But I, I think I'm, we're not going through this in all the detail. I've given you some details that I don't think we're going to handle. All that to say is we've got, I think, a, one more study that I want to hit on God's glory before we move back to some other issues with regard to the church. But right now, as we're doing, we're looking at the church, we're looking at church dynamics, how different things work with the church, and in specifically, we've been, we've been looking at the glory of God. And uh, we haven't reviewed, I thought it'd be a good thing for us to do this today, that when we're talking about our term glory, the Old Testament and the New Testament term, the Old Testament term had the idea of that which was heavy or weighty, important, honored, glorified. Okay, We don't use the word glory a great deal in modern conversation, so it's not a term that we're familiar with outside of Scripture. And uh, so, But when we come to the New Testament, we have the word doxa, which is an opinion. It's always a good opinion. It's always a good opinion when you have it. But, um, and I, that's... Uh, Josh and I've had this conversation. That's the definition I picked up when I was in seminary, but when I actually went and looked at Bible dictionaries, we call them lexicons, the first definition a lot of them give is the word reputation, which is really what glory is. We could say it's God's opinion or it's his reputation, the, the, the reputation or the opinion that we have about God's activity or character. So therefore, God's glory are going to be actions and attitudes that show God is deserving of honor and or is impressive. There's different ways of understanding depending on the context, and such actions then express God's reputation. So this is what we've been looking at, and we've been looking more particularly now at the fact that God has gets glory with respect to the church, or you and I, as we function as a church, have the opinion to express something about who God is, something about his glory, something about his reputation. And we're going to be in Ephesians today, Ephesians today, and we're going to be we're going to be reading quite a bit through this. We've got three chapters I would like to cover. How's that? Is that optimistic to think that we can cover three chapters in, in Ephesians? But we'll see what happens. So we're going to put in in Ephesians, and I'm going to put in down at verse three, Ephesians, Ephesians chapter one, verse three. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed or well spoken of is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed or has spoken well of us with every spiritual good speaking or good words in the heavenlies in Christ. We've talked about this quite a bit. How are you in Christ? Essentially, God has said that you're in Christ. That's what it comes down to. God logically counts that to be true. He says you are there. That's how you're in Christ. And when he says these things about us, we have some examples of things that he does as he handles us. One of those is he goes on verse 4. He says, even as, in other words, he says these good things, even as and consistent with the fact that he's chosen us 
in him. This doesn't mean chose us to salvation, which is not what it's saying. He chose us in Christ. And this is what it is. He chose us before the foundation to be. So if you were just to break, we've talked about this many times. If you just broke this sentence down into essence, he chose us what? To be. So there's something in here. Chose us to be holy and without blemish or without fault before him in love. So as we, you go over to Romans chapter 5, and the war is ended as we approach God, as we have this relationship to God, as we are before him, he sees us as holy, as those that are set apart, and those that are without blame. That's something he chose for us, uh, as one of the things that we would say he said about us in Christ. Verse 5, um, and then going on verse 5, then yeah, predestinating or setting out boundaries to deal with us as sons or son placement. We have that word adoption, okay, in there, but that word meaning to set us as sons. And we've talked about this quite a bit over the years, that that means that you're a child of God by birth, but at the very same time that you become a child in the same moment in Christ, God moves you in the position of privilege within the family that we know as sons. So every one of us is a son. We all have this position of privilege. And he's graduated. So when he uses that word that's translated predestined, it's a word setting, meaning that he set boundaries, that that's how he deals with us. He doesn't deal with us as little children in the family. He deals with us as those that have this privileged position. This privileged position to represent the family was a key facet of what a son was able to do. And so he says, through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his desirous will. This is what he wanted. And then he goes on and he says in verse, uh, and we're going to actually, well, we're just going to grab it right here, to the praise of the glory of his grace with which he has graced us in the one that is love. So we have the verb form of the word grace as well as um, the noun grace here. So it's to the praise of the glory of his grace. Now in this point, what he's reminding you and I is that, that this status that we have because we're in Christ and he says these good things, that ought to cause us to say, what, what's God's grace look like? Well, he took people like us and gave us this status that it was not deserved. It was not earned. And therefore, that's to the praise of his grace. Do you, want to, you want to know the reputation of his grace? You're going to look at grace that does this and provides this for people. He goes on then in verse 7, and he adds a couple of more things. He says, in whom we have redemption through his blood. That redemption, I, and I should be asking you these questions because we've talked about these verses so many times over the years, but this is a redemption that does what for us? It, it frees us. This, in fact, this word for redemption is built off of a word for a ransom that is though we were held by our own guilt, by our own sins, by our own trespasses, and he has taken care of that, that's cleared, so now we're set free. That's very important for these people because these people are having some problems getting along. Uh, so we have this redemption that frees through his blood, meaning it was a violent death that he suffered, which involved, it wasn't just that he just passed away peacefully in the night. We all understand that with the cross. And what that did was it, 
in keeping with God's plan was that there was blood that actually secured, that was the price of, his, of our redemption. And that provided us then the forgiveness of our trespasses, okay? And unless you're using a King James Bible, you should have trespasses here. The King James Bible translates it sin, but, and I always find this interesting, even the Textus Receptus that the King James is translated from has the word parapetoma here. It does not have the word hamartia or the word sin. Um, and I'm not for sure exactly where they came up with the idea of sin, but your trespasses. And it's interesting that he's going to mention trespasses a few other times here in Ephesians, uh, rather than mentioning sin as much as we would think. And I believe it's because if you understand a trespass, a trespass is something that's wrong. It is unrighteous. But it was a word that the Greeks used of something that, yeah, I know that's not right, but it's okay, isn't it? You excuse that thing. So it was something that's clearly wrong. It is offensive to God, but I'm, you're, okay. you're okay with me doing this. And in the context of Ephesians, kind of some of the tensions going on, tension is maybe putting it light, but the tensions going on between believers in the church, you can see sometimes when those are going on, how people so easily excuse that kind of attitude and behavior. And he's saying, hey, he had to deal with those trespasses. He had to deal with those things that you excuse. He had to provide forgiveness through a violent death, even for those things that you think they're not that big a deal. They're excusable. They're not. They are a big deal. They are trespasses. And he does so, what does it say at the end of verse 7? According to the riches of his grace. In other words, in his grace... He's not chintzy, he's, he's rich. He's, what word did you use, Peggy? He lavish, he's lavish with his grace. And somebody said rich, generous. So he's very generous with his grace and the way he de deals with us. So the opening section here, these opening verses are reminding us as believers, this is how it started. This is what God has, or this is what God has provided for you and this standing that you have now in Christ these things that God said about you that remain this, this identity that you have, it's all showing something about the reputation of God's grace, just how big God is in ha handling you and I, dealing with you and I, and providing for us. We come then to the next one in which he says, um, verse, verse 8, and we have the word lavished here in the New American Standard, but it's a word which he overflowed or abounded to us in all wisdom, and then this last word that's translated insight in the New American Standard is this frame of mind, this attitude, this outlook, this framework of truth that you view and filter the events and activities of life with. In other words, the way that God makes this abound, the way that God takes these truths, these we just had a, a quick set of those. There are so many more things that God has said and so many other things that God has even provided you that aren't things he said, actually things he gives you, such as the redemption. Redemption is actually not just something he says, it's something he actually gives to you. You have it in Christ. But, he's, but for you to actually enjoy the experience of those, you need to relate to it with wisdom and you need to relate to it with this frame of mind. Now, I want you to think about this. How many of you, 
when you got saved, within the first week that you were saved, how many of you learned about your identity in Christ? Raise your hand if, you, if somebody taught you about your identity in Christ the first week you'd heard the gospel. Anybody? The first month? First year. I got saved when I was five years old. I didn't learn about my identity in Christ. I mean, I'm sure I heard things about my identity, but it was never identified as my identity. It wasn't identified as something that I actually could relate to. It was just like, oh, this is there. But I didn't learn about these things until I'm 20 years old. 15 years go by in my Christian life. Hopefully that wasn't your case. Hopefully you learned earlier in life than I did about these things. I learned all kinds of good biblical truths, but I didn't learn a lot about what God says about me in Christ and these things that I have in Christ. And so he says, you have to have wisdom. In order to have wisdom, you need to know, that wisdom means you have to know, and there's two aspects I always think about wisdom. There's no how. How do you relate to this? How do you put this into use? It's not just that God has said these things about you, but he now gives you and I the opportunity to relate to it. He says, use your mind. In that mind, have this framework of mind, this, what was the word we learned in seminary? Deeper reflective thinking, which I never got that. It was just, Josh has had to explain to me what was taught because I never could figure out what that meant, deeper reflective thinking. Because to my, it's, it, anyway, I'm not here to fight with that word because of that expression. That was my own struggle that I had. But this attitude, this frame of mind that we have where we take these truths and put them here and we learn to look at life. We, how many times do we talk about this? And this word is actually very common throughout the New Testament epistles because Paul considers this a big thing for you to learn, you and I to learn how to relate to all these events and things in life, the things that God is doing, to use this. So, you, most of you all know this. Our bathroom right now is torn down to the studs. We have, a, we have the shower base put in, set in mud. It's there. Maybe this afternoon, if my wife's agreeable to this and we get home, we may set the shower walls in place. But we've moved wiring and we plumbed. But I can guarantee you 90% of this has been an uphill struggle. I'm just like, man, we've done stuff like this before and it hasn't been this hard. Why has this one been so hard? And I think I shared with you a couple weeks ago when we started on the fruit of the Spirit on Wednesday night that the second part of that fruit was joy. In that verse in James 1 kept ringing through my mind, count it all joy when you come into different kinds of temptation. Well, you say, that was just a hard thing. No, I can guarantee you the problems of getting plumbing that didn't want to go where it was supposed to go became a basis of a temptation where I wanted to have a fit. Oh, wait a second. No, that's not the way you put it. A living fit. <laughs> you know, seriously. It was, I was going, wait a second. And now I'm giving you this as an example. That I was like, wait a second. And I am laying in filth under my house in a crawl space about this big. Thanks to my wife, I did have one of those white suits on because Angie had mentioned this. And Peg had said, go down and get one of these. So I, I'm under there. I've got my respirator and I'm laying in all this dirt. And I'm like, you know what? I may be laying under my house in the dirt, but I'm seated at your right hand. And I'm not really a part of this nonsense I can actually relate to this from that perspective. And you know what, how amazing it was? Going for, it didn't make the job easier in terms of like all of a sudden everything goes together just right, all fits, no problems. It wasn't that. 
But have you ever had something where the job's still just as hard, but the attitude makes it a lot better? Just the attitude change, the perspective. And that would be know-how. That would be the know-how side of wisdom. Know how to take that, that truth that you know about yourself and put that into play in the right way and learn to look at whatever circumstance. Maybe it's a good circumstance. Maybe, maybe good things have happened. But in your pers perspective in Christ, you can say, God, thank you for this, but thank you. You let me get a brand new car. I didn't get a brand new car, but just say, I just, you just allowed me to get a brand new car because my other one was just clunking and I'm constantly fixing it and doing this, but thank you that you've provided me this new car. Okay? But then you, but then you remind yourself, but you know, in Christ, I already have all the things that I really need, ultimately, and... What is, I, was, I was just talking to somebody the other day on the phone, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, those that buy is not possessing. In other words, acquiring things, it's not the be-all, end-all, is it? It's not that you go to the place and buy a car and say, oh, I'm going to leave it on the lot because God says I can't possess it. That's not what he meant. You just mean that you look at the things that you acquire and say, they're not the be-all, end-all. I've got much better things that I relate to in terms of what God is doing and what God has said about me in Christ. So that's the know-how. The know-when, I always think, because this is also part of wisdom, isn't it? Knowing when to relate to stuff, the proper time. In other words, when I'm struggling with something and I'm struggling with my sin nature, knowing how to relate to who God says I am in Christ with respect to my sin nature, that I, what could we say about it, first of all, that I did what? I died. I died with Christ to the sin nature. And I was buried, but I am now, I'm now alive. I'm alive to God in Christ. And remember, uh, Romans chapter 8, we, we hit this last week when we were looking at that, that whole survey through Romans there on that stability issue. But in Romans 8, 2, he tells us that it's, the, it's that principle that the Spirit uses of our life that is in Christ Jesus. Not our death in Christ, but it's our life in Christ Jesus that frees us from essentially the law or the cycle of the sin nature and the death. You want to figure out how to get out of that cycle where your sin nature is constantly beating you up? You got to start learning to relate to the life that you have up there. You got to do more than just say, I'm dead to this. You have to come up there and say, wait a second, 99% of what's true of you in Christ is related to the life side. It's related to who you are alive in Christ Jesus. So that's the no when. So the first, so the first thing he says, he's made this abound to us in all wisdom. You're going to have to use wisdom. These are truths. It's good things to know. But if you just take those truths, maybe you get a set of notes from your pastor for all I know. Or a sheet. You know, Dave Spurbeck used to pass out a sheet of things that are true of you in Christ. Maybe you get one of those and you take it and stick it in your back pocket. But if you don't ever relate to it, appropriately use those things. They're not benefiting you. God still says them all about you, but you're not enjoying the benefit in your experience. That's the first part. Then the second part, as also then in that frame of mind, which we were talking about, that comes in there. You have to have this frame of mind. You, it's not just that you just think about those things, but you learn to view these affairs through that. And so those are the two aspects, he says, about those things. And then he goes on and he tells these believers something else. 
tells him in verse 9, and he has made known to us the mystery of his desirous will. The mystery. What's a mystery? Something not known in the Old Testament. It was something that God planned, but he hadn't explained to anybody. It was, be, it was between the Father, Son, and Spirit. But he hadn't told the angels about it, hadn't told people about it. But he was planning to do this. And so that's the first thing. One of the things that uh, uh, Stan used to mention about this is at the time the New Testament was written, we could say that a mystery was a new truth. Isn't that the way you, put, you used to put it? It was a new truth at that time. To us it was. God, like I said, God had planned it, but it was new to us. And he says this mystery is about something that God desired. And I think it's important to understand this is something God wanted. This is something that God wanted. And he goes on and tells us, and it's according to or by the standard of his good pleasure. And he purposed. He's actually set this down as a purpose in himself. Verse 10. For the stewardship, the management, the household rule, the dispensation, the word most of us cut our teeth on, the dispensation of the fullness of times. This is when all time is coming to this time where it's culminated. Keep in mind, when this is done, there is no more time. Time ends. You're not going to need a time X. One, well, we won't need it after the rapture, but, but you're not going to need your Timex one second after that because we move into eternity, as it were. Well, creation, all creation does, or what there is of, of us. But we will also be part of this. So that's what he's looking at. This is talking about, we would call this, what Jim was talking about it today, popularly we call this the millennial kingdom because of the reference to a thousand years six times over in uh, Revelation chapter 20. And that's when this is. But the, it's, it's, a, it's a time that is being full. It's these people that are going to be living by a standard where they realize this is where time is coming to its culmination. And they're going to be appreciating, they should be appreciating as they live, what God's doing is he's bringing all things to this point out there, filling all these things up. And he says, um, so get back in here in verse 10, it's for the dispensation, the house rule of the fullness of times, that he might head up the all things by the Christ. No question. Yeah, I'm asking questions. You guys have been through this. You know, should know all the answers. But does the Old Testament, was it a mystery? Let's ask that question. Was it a mystery that Jesus Christ, or let's put it this way, from the Jews' perspective, their anointed king, their Messiah, that was just, all that is is Hebrew, that he was going to reign in the Old Testament. Was that a mystery in the Old Testament? No. That was actually quite plainly made. So much so that when Jesus shows up, the Jews during Jesus' earthly life said, well, this is incredible what he did. When Messiah comes, is he going to do greater things than this? And they knew things. We know where Messiah comes from. Where this man comes from? Psh. See. So they knew stuff about this Messiah. They were expecting him. They had prophecy in the Old Testament, and during his earthly life, they even stated things that they did know about the Messiah. Not maybe as much as they should have known, but, or at least they didn't state it, and it wasn't recorded for us. But So when it says he's going to sum up all things by the Christ, what is he referring to? He's referring to Jesus Christ, the head, sharing this identity that he has with 
his body, seen us all together as one. Jesus Christ is ahead. And I, and I know some of you are aware of this, but I've, I've, we've run into some believers that sometimes are very offended by this idea. We're not here to defend this idea that this is the meaning of the Christ. And it's not that. There's a lot of places that in the epistles where we have the Christ. That's the way it translates literally in English. And it refers to the person of Jesus Christ plainly. But we have about a dozen passages without question that refers to Jesus Christ as a head along with the body. At least a dozen that are plain. And some of them, I don't know how you could do this. Case in point, we just went over this a few weeks ago in this study on God's glory. Paul, when he wrote the Colossians, says that I am suffering. And he says, I'm making up what is lacking, remember, in the sufferings of the Christ. You mean to tell me Jesus Christ didn't suffer enough? Paul, you think you're so arrogant to think you need to make up what Jesus Christ didn't suffer for? Do you remember that over in Colossians 1? That's not what Paul meant. We all understand that. We've been through this. He's saying, no, the Christ, not everybody suffers the same. And we've talked about that. I've, there are believers in Christ around the world right now that are suffering horribly for their faith in Jesus Christ. I barely, by comparison, know what it is to suffer for Jesus Christ. Probably, I think most of you here would say you have suffered at one time or another. You've had people that have gotten really hostile towards you uh, or they're dismissive in a very rude manner. Maybe you have friends that don't like to talk to you anymore or people that you've worked with and they kind of treat you with arrogance and they treat you like you're stupid because you believe in salvation by faith in Jesus Christ alone. But that's, to be honest, and I'm not trying to dismiss that, but I'm just saying that's kind of small compared to what others suffered. I wasn't like Paul. I wasn't beaten up. I wasn't stoned. I wasn't beaten with rods. I wasn't thrown in prison. Those are some of the things he suffered. And Paul doesn't sit there and go, God, why me? Why do I? He says, no, I rejoice that I get to make up what's lacking in the sufferings of the Christ. So the Christ, all of this just as we kind of chase that little rabbit trail around over here, we come back here into verse 10. He, what he's saying is he's going to sum up, he's going to bring under a, shall we say, under a headship. Because Jesus Christ's rule is not just about justice. That is a key facet of his kingdom. But when it uses this word head up, it, think about what Jesus Christ does as head of the body. What does it mean when we say Christ is head of the body? It means he's the boss. I'm the head. I tell you what to do. And Jim did a really wonderful study with us in the adult class, I don't know, seems like two years ago, but it was probably five for all I know, on what headship really was. And most of the time, it's very plain when you go through and look at headship in the scriptures. Headship is about how, in the case of the husband and wife, how the husband is providing and caring for the wife, helping her become what she's supposed to be. It's not just, I'm the boss, where's my slippers? Get my pipe. Wait a second, that's the 50s. Okay, this is the 21st century. You know, I don't, I don't know what, what a husband would demand of his wife these days, but that's not it. Headship is very different. So when Jesus Christ is head over the kingdom, and I think Jim gave us a good example this morning about how these the nations down here on earth, they're going to bring their wealth to to the kingdom. The gates will be open day or night, and those that wealth will be brought there. 
And you have that over in Zechariah, and you have it in Revelation 21, and you have that in uh, Isaiah. There was a couple passages in Isaiah that uh, we're flipping through. And they're bringing their wealth there. And Jesus Christ is then meeting out. He's the one that oversees this as the head. This is just one facet of all the things that he's doing. And he's meeting out of those things that are needed for the nations and needed for the people. So what it's telling us here is that he's heading up. This is what's happening. This word is not the word rule. It's the word that he's acting as like the head that is up or over these things. He's directing these, the affairs on this. All the things by the Christ, the things that are in the heavens and the things that are on the earth. What are things that are in heavens? What would we say are some things that are in heavens? Spirit beings. Spirit beings are some things that are in heavens. And I think that that's important that he does use a, a neuter here. They're things, which is what he usually refers to those as. But there's also things that are on the earth. Those are going to be people and nations. And so he is heading up all of these things. And you and I, everybody got this? You and I get to participate in that. And I always have to, I run to this illustration because I, I think when I grew up, I, I think probably, if I remember correctly, probably the idea of us ruling with Christ, I probably figured I wasn't going to rule that well because I wasn't that good of a kid. And so I was going to be that guy that maybe got one city because we had that all messed up out of the Gospels. But there are those super Christians that they're doing five cities or ten cities, not me. In fact, I don't know, maybe I don't even get a city. Maybe I get a city block somewhere, I don't know. But I just, but we know better that we are going to reign with Christ over everything. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that we're going to judge the world and we're going to judge angels. We. Now, this is the illustration I've used. What I should ask you, what illustration do I use to illustrate that we really will, we really will get to rule with Christ? Not just a verse that says we're going to reign with him. Because it's not about us. It's, not, it's a different verse. Not about us. Remember? The end of 1 Kings, we have an illustration where God is in heaven and the spirit beings are there. And Micaiah the prophet, God's prophet, the only prophet around that's God's prophet at that moment, he's present there among all these other prophets, these prophets that Ahab has. And Jehoshaphat says, isn't there a prophet of God here? And he goes, yeah, there is, but I don't like that. That's what Ahab, I don't like that guy. He never says anything good. Why? Well, because he was always telling the truth. <coughs> what does he say there in 1 Kings? Micaiah, after, after Micaiah kind of tells Ahab what he wants to hear, and Ahab knows he's not telling the truth, then he says, okay, I'll tell you what happened. I got to see God on the throne up there, and I got to see the hosts, the armies of heaven gathered. And God says, how shall we kill Ahab? And one says, by this means. And one says, by this means. Now, God knows what he's going to do. But what he's doing is he is using his creation, these spirit beings, because this is what they do. This is why one of the reasons we call this the kingdom from the heavens, because God uses these spirit beings in the direction of that kingdom. And on the left, yeah, and one on the right, one on the left. And then one of them says, I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets. And God says, that's what we're going to do. And so the point, and I'm not saying it's going to be identical to that, but I, I'm just taking it that when we rule 
as we've said before, I don't think Jesus Christ says, this nation has not been coming up to keep the festivals. This is out of Zechariah 14. This nation has not been coming up to keep the festivals. Therefore, I think we should give them no rain because that was the curse that's uttered on them. No rain on that nation. Why would no rain be a big deal? What is the primary economy in the kingdom? Farming. You don't have rain, what happens? It's not a Columbia Basin with an irrigation project. No, God sends rain and he sends it in its seasons. It's like living in Iowa where I grew up. So we're going to withhold rain. And so then God says, okay, all those in favor say aye. Any opposed? Any abstain? Motion carried. No, I don't think that's what's going to happen. I'm just telling you, this is strictly my opinion. I don't have a chapter and verse that tells us this. But I think the point is, if it says we ruled him, I think like that example we have at the end of 1 Kings, there's going to be a day that we're there in heaven and something needs to be done with this nation. He's going to turn to Ben and he's going to say, Ben, what should we do about this nation over here? The nation of Egypt doesn't want to come up and keep the feasts. And Ben says we should withhold rain. And you know, God does send rain. That was that verse that I mentioned at the end. I didn't know if Jim was going to handle it out of Acts 14. God gave rain so that he gave nations their fruitful seasons. It was a kind of a constant testimony that God left in the world. And, God, and Jesus Christ is going to say, that's what we're going to do. We're going to withhold rain. I'm just suggesting. Don't go home and say, oh, the Bible tells us. No, just remember, this is an example that your pastor gave based on what God did with those spirit beings in 1 Kings, at the end of 1 Kings, as he brought about the death of Ahab. So this is important for us to understand when he says that he's going to head up all things by the Christ, the things that are in heaven, and the things in the earth. In other words, you and I are part of the Christ, and we are going to get to play a key role in the governance of that kingdom with Christ. Christ is going to rule with his body. Now, I want, to just, I want to stop and I want to think about something on this as an aside related to the issue. What's the problem going on in the book of Ephesians? You have, a, you have tensions or a conflict between believers who come from Jewish background and believers that come from a Gentile background. And the Gentiles could go to well, those first or those verses in the middle of chapter two, and they could say, Yeah, those Jews, yeah, they may be sitting in church with us over here, but they're the ones who used to call us uncircumcised all the time. This never happens in churches, right? You never have believers that, well, I remember that guy before he got saved, he was a punk. I remember him. Why, when we were at school, when I was, and it's, you know, when you've taught school for a while and you had some of these kids. And you remember them when they were juniors and seniors in high school and say, man, they were a handful. They were punks. And then you happen to be at a store up in Moses Lake standing in line to buy a pair of tennis shoes. And one of these guys comes behind you and he goes, hey, Mr. Holscher, how are you doing? I'd like to introduce you to my wife. What are you doing? How are you and your wife? How's Mrs. Holscher? And you're just like... Who are you? <laughs> and you go, oh, wait a second. You grew up. You're still not 17 and 18 anymore. You grew up. But I could sit and go, I'm talking to you. You're a punk. You were a, you were a handful. You, you made my life miserable up there in, in, when you were in high school English. 
And you could do those kind of things. Well, you can do the same thing in the church. You could say, I remember what you were like and I remember how you treated me. And you don't let go of it. And for the Jews and the Gentiles in this church to realize they're all part of the Christ, they're all together. And the Jews aren't saying, it's not like Jesus Christ is going to say, hey, I'm asking my Jewish brothers, hey, brothers, what are we going to do about these guys? You guys be quiet over here, Gentiles. We're going to the Jewish brothers. No, he's not doing that. He treats all of us the same because we're all one. We're all part of one body, right? This should make an impact. This probably really makes an impact, especially I would think about the Jewish people because the Jewish people, especially the believers, would have had some understanding of the fact that they were promised to have some relationship to this reign. The Jews were going to be over the Gentiles. And now he's saying, and you're going to be reigning with Gentiles with Christ. What? <laughs> it makes you stop and think about what your future is going to be. It's one of those places where thinking about your future, those people that say prophecy and future, that's not really helpful. We're going to talk about practical stuff. Knowing about your future has practical implications just like this. You stop and realize that all of the body of Christ is going to reign with Jesus Christ, all of us together as the Christ, and we're going to have this opportunity to be involved. It makes you think carefully about how you relate even now to those people, doesn't it? Sure. I had to look back and see if Josh gave me a nod on that. No, <laughs> no I looked back and Josh was nodding his head. I was, I was joking about that. Verse 11. Verse 11. And he goes on and he says, as he's talked about this, uh, he says in verse 11, and also then, uh, we have, numerical standard, we have obtained an inheritance. Ah, no, sorry for playing. No, it's a passive. We have been made an inheritance. We are Christ's inheritance. Having been, again, as he says in here, predestined. That was the same word that we had back in verse 5. In other words, there's boundaries that God has set for how he deals with us. He deals with it within those boundaries. And those boundaries are in accordance with his purpose. The one that is working all things according to what he has determined coming from what he wanted. He wanted this. He determined this. He made a purpose based on that. And everything he's doing then works together with that. God does not work at counter purposes. He isn't doing something and I'm trying to do this. You know, when you're working on a plumbing project under the house, sometimes you're thinking, I need this. And you're like, I can't do that because this part that I need to do here, they're in the way of each other i got to figure out how to make them work together. God never does that. God never works and finds, oh, I want to do this, but i got this problem because I want to do this. Ah! God never finds himself in that situation. Aren't you glad? So as he has worked and made us Christ's inheritance, this is what it is. He's made us something. We're something to inherit. And I, you know, I always joke about this. You, uh, my wife likes, she's found these videos that she watches where people bring out and they take like an old not Tonka, let's go pre-Tonka, Structo. I actually have a Structo truck up in there. But mine was towards the end of Structo's <clears throat> business life. But he'll have a Structo, Structo truck, and the plastic is yellowed and nasty, and the wheels look gross, and it's all rusty like this, and it doesn't work. And you'll watch this guy 
clean these things up, puts them in, he sandblasts or soda blasts, gets all the rust off, he powder coats these things, he puts parts in there to make it work, and he takes this nasty, rusty thing and makes it beautiful. Now, the reason I use that is sometimes when you see those things, you're like, there's no way you can be able to make this thing beautiful when you're done. Sometimes it's like, yeah, you made it beautiful because you got rid of all the junk parts and put new parts in it. That's kind of cheating. You know, I always like it when they can actually fix all the parts that are there. And you say, okay, what does this have to do with this inheritance thing? Well, what if you inherit it? We know when you were a little kid that you loved to play with the dump truck at grandma's house. Here's your rusty old truck. You inherited it. What? I mean, in other words, sometimes there are things that we might inherit that we would go, that's, that's, I don't want to inherit that. I wanted to inherit, I wanted to inherit a million dollars. I didn't want to inherit some rusty old piece of junk that had been stored out back. Y'all get the point? And the reason I say that is because oftentimes when we think of inheritance, we think of something that's valuable. But we of ourselves are not something valuable to inherit. I don't want to hurt your feelings, but that's just the plain simple of it. What is Paul? We looked at it last week in Romans, Romans 5. What are, well, there's four things actually, but what are the things he said about us when Christ dealt with us? That we were enemies. We were hostile enemies. Yeah, hostile. We were sinners. And we were ungodly. Hostile, sinners, and ungodly. Those are the kind of people that he saved. And now he's made us an inheritance. And you'd say, why would he want to inherit a bunch of enemies? Because he's changed us. He's made, he's done a work. And when the rapture comes and we see Christ as he is and we're caught up into his presence, we're going to be changed. And we're not going to be what we were in the past. We're not even what we were in the past now. He's already in the process of making that change. I have a new standing in Christ, but at the same time, I have regeneration so that I actually have a new nature with a new set of desires I didn't care about before I was saved. And I have eternal life, and I have the Holy Spirit that can put it all together. So when he says there that we have been made an inheritance, I think you need to put it in perspective that this is he's inheriting us in accord with the work that he's doing with us, that he's actually, that he is making us something valuable. He's like the guy that Peg watches videos that takes the nasty dump truck and makes it really nice. And if you want to watch those, you'll have to talk to her about this thing. What? Toy dump truck. Toy dump truck. Yeah, not a, yeah they already know that because I, I already had given them the, the too long of an illustration. Verse 12. To the end, or to the point, that we, here we come again now, that we should be to the praise of the glory, or his glory. Part of the purpose of that inheritance, and I, because we're not going to get there today, but I want you to get this today. I want you to see this, so we're going to jump to it. Keep your finger here, but you don't have to. We're just going to turn over to chapter 3. Turn over to chapter 3. And I want to go to verse 8. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of the Christ. That's another. This is not Jesus Christ. This is the riches of the Christ. And to bring to light what is the administration, the dispensation, the house rule 
uh, that was a mystery. In other words, our house rule, which is, what's our house rule? Grace. Grace. That house rule was a mystery. It was a hidden truth, which from ages has been hidden from God. Now, when it says ages, what is that relating to in particular? Spirit beings. I mean, we relate to ages, but spirit beings really relate to ages. And he's going to say that. Who created all things? In order that the manifold or multifaceted wisdom of God might be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. What are the rulers and authorities? Spirit beings. There are two ranks of spirit beings. And what he's saying is those spirit beings there in the heavens watching what God's doing with you and I are learning something about God's multifaceted wisdom. Now, I just went over there briefly to show you that they are watching this. And if we go back over to Ephesians chapter 1, one way, one way out of all of this, I'm not saying it's limited to this, but one way that we are to the praise of his glory is that those spirit beings are watching what God is doing with these rebellious, messed up, broken clay pots, as Paul refers to us. We looked at that a couple weeks ago in this study over in 2 Corinthians. We're these clay pots. We're these rebels. And I think that this really says something to spirit beings because the spirit beings, if they're around, well, if they're around, pardon me, the spirit <laughs> beings, they were around, the spirit beings watched something happen. They watched a rebellion on earth, but they also watched another rebellion in history. They watched a rebellion in which Satan sold an idea to a third, according to Revelation 12, a third of the spirit beings that are out there, and they attempted a rebellion against God. They attempted to unseat God and seat Satan above that place even and have him take that authority that's, that, that God had had. And they watched that rebellion. And God provided no redemption for those spirit beings. He hasn't done anything for them to seek forgiveness or to be changed. But then we come along lower than the angels, and we also enter into a, a rebellion. Remember we looked at that last week in Romans 1, that pro progress? And we looked at that fallen state of man in Romans 1 and Romans chapter 2, we all were equally lost. And you get that? And these spirit beings are watching this going, this is amazing. These beings aren't even as good as we are, not even as, as powerful as we are. And he's saving them. And look at what he's doing with them. And he is going to take that group, that group, the church, the body of Christ, and he's going to inherit them. And look at, he's taking that nasty, rusty old truck and he's fixing it up. He's actually doing something with it. Just wait until they see us at the rapture. Just wait till they see us when we come back with Christ at the second coming. But they're watching this, and that is to the praise of his glory. That is to the praise of his glory. We have to keep going just a little bit more before we tie this off today. Verse 13, and he says, In him... You also, after listening to the message of truth, that is the gospel of your salvation, or having heard that, having also believed, so you have to hear the gospel, but you believed, you were then sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. How do you make sure that you're going to get this thing? 
We're talking about this inheritance. How does Christ know that he is going to get his complete inheritance? I heard a story many years ago about a person that had a whole bunch of stock certificates for like AT&T stock going back. And we're, we're talking about that this happened like 50 years ago, like when I was a kid or before that, for all I know. And even at that time, that stock had doubled and had become doubled many times. And this person inherited it. And they went and this stuff had been kept, not in a nice vault or safe, but in one of those old nasty metal lock boxes, you know, that just had a little key, you put it in, opens it up. And this stuff had gotten water damaged in there. And these stock certificates they had, had become all just so severely damaged, you couldn't even hardly read the numbers on it. Some of them were still, I suppose they could cash them in, but a bunch of them were damaged beyond, beyond identification. So here this person's going to inherit all this great AT&T stock. And guess what? They got some, but they didn't get it all. Well, you know what? I don't know how to tell you guys this. But when Christ inherits us, how do we know that some of you are actually going to make it there? Not all damaged in the lockbox, messed up and no good. No, he's assuring. The Spirit has sealed us. He's sealed to guarantee that Christ is going to receive that incomplete inheritance so that when he takes his throne in the kingdom, when he returns, as, it, as we have in Romans chapter 8, and we are seen and the, and the creation can see the liberty of us as the sons of God and the creation is liberty. When they see us come back and we take the throne with Christ as he grants us, we're not coming and going, hey, where's my seat? No, it's gonna, it's gonna, he grants us to sit with him on his throne. And when that happens, we're all going to be there. He's not going to go, where's Josh? Everybody's going, he didn't make it. Oh! Oh, yeah, I picked on him twice today. I won't pick on you anymore today. It's not going to happen. We're all, he's good. The, 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 the inheritance will be complete because he has sealed us. Now, I believe that that seal is a seal into Christ. We've talked about that at other times because that's what it says in the first part, in him. And then you put the end of the verse, you were sealed. You were sealed in Christ. And then verse 14, Verse 14, and he has given us then a pledge or a down payment of our inheritance. So not only is Christ inheriting something, but we also get an inheritance in that, which is what? That we're going to be everything he's planned us to be. So that Christ isn't inheriting a piece of junk. He's inheriting that which has been transformed, changed, made like unto himself. Last verse there of Philippians chapter 3. And he says, with the review of the redemption, there's that rede word redemption again that we had in verse 7, the word meaning a payment or a ransom that sets free. And he says that redemption is of, and we, they've added the word God, but of the special possession. Why is it a special possession? Because Jesus Christ paid a price to secure us, to secure our freedom, and we become his special possession. Can you imagine all of us being something that he looks at as a special possession. I, I can't think of a lot of things that I have in my life that I would go, oh, 
that's a special possession. I have a guitar in my office. My wife bought it for me years ago because I had a pretty wonky guitar. And she took me and she says, I'm going to get you a nicer one. And I'm not a great guitar player. You all know that. But you know what? I still look at that and I think that's a special possession. That's one of the things that she got for me. I have another special possession in my office. I was at a used bookstore in, well, an antique store at the Amana Colonies in Iowa back in 19, before we moved out here. You guys don't care. And I, there's just all these German books on the shelf. And I'm looking there, and I've taken German in college, so I'm looking through, and I get down towards the bottom, and I pull out this one. It doesn't have a title on the back. Everything's printed. I pull it out. It's a first edition of the Nestle's Greek Testament, all printed in German and printed in Stuttgart. And I was like, wow! I didn't know it was the first edition at the time. I just like, that's old, because the dating, it's, it, it's not the second edition, it's the first. I was like, that's kind of a special possession. You guys all probably have things you could say, that's a special position. I'm not going to risk my neck to run in a fire and pull those things out. But they're things that are kind of special to me. We are his special possession. We are his inheritance. And he says, he is going to liberate us. Right now, we still kind of have some problems with this flesh down there. Not just physically that we have flesh that hurts and aches and I've got something going on with my thumb that I can't tell you what it is. My wife says arthritis. I'm saying, no, that's a dirty word. Don't say that. <laughs> but but we, still, we still have problems that we deal with the flesh that's going, you know what right now? Just kick that pipe. We also have problems with the flesh that way, right? But you know what? That redemption, part of the down payment that the Spirit has been given to you and to me functions that as his inheritance that we are going to be completely liberated one day. That the full effect of that redemption is going to be completely applied and we're going to find out what it is like not only to be liberated from the problems of this fallen body by having a glorified body, but no longer having to deal with this stinking sin nature this flesh that wants to do something contrary to God. And why the Spirit is a down payment is I actually can experience that at moments in time, can't I? As I relate to who God says I am in Christ, right? So I'm actually getting a sample, a taste of what my future is going to be like. So he says at the end of verse 14, again, to the praise of his glory, of his reputation. You want to know what kind of God we have. It's a God that saved us. Not just by saying, oh, I saved you. I saved you. I just, I just get rid of everything. No, he saved us through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. He does so by grace. He treats us in a way that we don't deserve. He then not only does that, but then he frees us. He provides a freedom for us. And he then plans to say, you can even be relating to this. You can use wisdom and you can frame your mind with this stuff and you can experience this. I'm giving you the spirit as a down payment. And one day soon, you are going to sit with the Son on the Son's throne. And you're going to get to share in His reign, in His oversight, and His care of the things in the heaven and the things in the earth. That's the kind of reputation of our God 
and it's worthy of praise, as he said through these things. We have some more statements about praise to go through in Ephesians. We're going to come back and pick those up next week. Um, and uh, we'll continue looking at these three chapters here in Ephesians. But hopefully this encourages you today to think about your future, to think about the great salvation you have. And in connection with that, think about how you, as you live, and God's work in us, and with all of us, not just me as an individual, but all of us together, really is saying something about the character, the reputation, the glory of our great God. Father, we're thankful for the time you've given us together. We're thankful uh, for this great standing we have in Christ and for your plan as you have laid it out and the things that you've shared through the Apostle Paul with this Ephesian church. And now that we get to pick this letter up and read it for ourselves, that we can be encouraged that you have just tremendous things. You have done tremendous things, but you have even greater things yet to come. And we're thankful. We ask that we might use wisdom with these things, that we might frame our minds, that we might look at our future and just think how that perspective should impact the way we move about from day to day. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for these dear saints you brought out. And uh, we do praise you. We do recognize the greatness the greatness of your reputation for all these things that you have done in providing the salvation for us. Amen.